way we spend our time defines who we are. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. Just asking, just asking. <laughs> listening to Ariva Martin in real time. I'm your host, Ariva Martin, and I'm joined today first by University of Maryland Professor Niambi Carter. Welcome, Dr. Carter. Thank you for having me, Ariva. Always good to see you, my friend. Also joining us in this hour is University of Edinburgh, Professor Tommy Curry. Welcome, Dr. Curry. Thank you for having me. All right, guys, we got to start off with that big Super Bowl. Two African-American quarterbacks, the Black National Anthem sang by, uh, sung by uh, Shirley Ralph. Babyface made an appearance. Uh, Rihanna made an appearance. It wasn't quite the uh, Super Bowl of last year where I'd say it was black, black, blackity black, but it felt pretty black to me last night. Uh, how were you thinking, uh, Dr. Carter, about last night's Super Bowl and that historic moment where we saw those two black quarterbacks take the field? Well, you know, I, I look at it like a lot of casual observers. I mean, it was interesting to see, you know, I tuned in to watch a Rihanna concert with football. Um, so that's <laughs> it. But I mean, I think, look, the truth is the NFL is the same organization it's always been, right? I mean, there are only two non-white owners. There's never been a Black owner in the over-century-long history of that um, organization. I mean, when you look at the Black coaches, I mean, that, those numbers have been dwindling. And then, you know, the Brian Flores suit, I mean, I think we forget about that. We talk about Colin Kaepernick, Kaepernick a lot, but we almost never talk about the blind, uh, Brian Flores um, discrimination lawsuit. So I think that that institution is doing what it always does, but now it incorporates a little bit more color, more pizzazz on the field, which is what they always do, but not in the back offices. So, you know, I take it for what it is. It's a PR stunt that the NFL does a lot, uh, generates a lot of positive buzz around it. And, you know, they can continue on with sort of business as usual. What about you, Dr. Curry? Obviously, what Dr. Carter said is the sentiment of lots of folks, but other folks feel like, look, this may be the beginning of something new in the NFL. We know black men in particular were blocked out of or you know, uh, were, were prohibited from being the quarterback, which is considered the most, I guess, the most cerebral position on the team. And now to have those superstar performances last night, do you think this could be, uh, you know, a turning point for the NFL where we start to see some progress in some of those areas that Dr. Carter identified that are still lacking? Well, Reva, I think it's always uh, easier to sell symbols rather than substance. You know, as you say, there's there's been a historical uh, stereotype about black men not being intelligent enough, quick enough on their feet uh, to think about the intellectual part of the game, that they're that they're brutes so they can run fast, they can catch balls, but they're not they can't actually plan and have any kind of analytic skills. So I think that, you know, when we when we talk about someone like a Colin Kaepernick, who still is unemployed, uh, you know, in an organization where almost 60 percent of the players are black, right, black men. Uh, you're, you're looking at a dereliction of the organization to address the substance of the claims that have been, been made since 2016. See, so he's saying that black men can throw the ball, and yes, we can celebrate that there are two black male quarterbacks, you know, at the lead. But what are the what what does it mean when they disagree with the overall politics and the image and the and, and the commodification of their bodies that the NFL has put on? Right, Colin Kaepernick says that we need to kneel for the kind of police brutality we need to stand against. Uh, the, at that time, President Donald Trump. 
And we need to pay attention to the ways that, you know, our at-large market, you know, phenomena, our social culture is buying into the murder of black people and, and suppressing black civil rights and human rights. And he gets kicked off. He's still banned, still hasn't been able to play football. But then we come back and we give everyone an image to say, look, let's celebrate how many black people can make us money and can sing for us and dance for us. And look at this great symbolism of two black quarterbacks going back to back, right? So we buy into that imagery. We buy into the idea that black people are being allowed into the NFL and spin that as if the, those symbols lead to substantial change. Um, but at the reality, we still have the majority of the NFL, which is black. We have the lack of black owners, lack of black coaches, and we have the banning. This is the important part, the banning and censure of black people, specifically a black quarterback who tends to disagree with the overall political stance of the NFL. This is not a symbol. This is not actual change. This is more symbols that's being sold to our people as if it's actual progress. So I hear what you're saying, Professor Curry, and I had this debate, of course, leading up to the Super Bowl. We've been talking about the Super Bowl because it is some of the biggest news uh, of the last couple of weeks. And when I made an argument pretty similar to the arguments that both of you are making, Professor uh, Carter, I had some folks call in and push back and say, well, wait a minute. These black guys, for the most part, many of them are from disenfranchised communities. They're from you know black communities where they don't get a lot of opportunities. And this is a big opportunity for them to make money that they otherwise would obviously never make. I mean, look, I think no one is begrudging black people an opportunity to make whatever they can, right? I mean, I'm not mad that Rihanna is monetizing her her performance and selling makeup with it, right? But I think we also have to understand the limits of that. Is that really progress? Only so many people are going to play in the NFL. I remember how we felt in 1988 when Doug Williams was the quarterback, right? And, and what a great moment that was. But here we are in 2023, and it took until 2023 to see two Black quarterbacks playing against each other in the NFL. And that's not by happenstance. I mean, I think if we talk about the NFL, that's one thing. Most people aren't going to play professional sports. That's a very small world. But when we look at all of us, many of us are working in and working for organizations that exclude us, that take our labor, that do lots of things um, to us. And if we think about football players as somehow being removed or the NFL is not representative of the larger society that we live in, I think that's where we make the mistake. So nobody's telling Black people to go be unemployed. Nobody's telling Black people to not use their talents, but I do think we have to recognize what the institutions we are working for and working with and through, um, that they are working on us at the same time, that they are able to generate even more money. So yes, we can talk about what Patrick Mahomes and Jalen Hurts might make, but how much do those owners of those teammates, how much money is the NFL generating off of their image in perpetuity? Right. Because these people are still going to be able to sell jerseys with their names and their numbers, right. sell images with their likeness in perpetuity. So, I mean, I think there's a, a real understanding that all of us are operating within constraints. But I think it's another thing to say that the NFL sort of gets a pass because it makes us feel good or because it's something that millions of people enjoy. I think that's the problem. The NFL is not immune to the criticisms that we might have of other corporations, of other entities that exploit Black people, that exploit people of color all the time. Just because we like it doesn't make it okay. Just because- So are you saying, nation, Dr. Carter, let me hmm? make sure I understand what you said. Are you saying watch the game, watch the Monday night football, the Saturday football? Uh, you know, you can tell how much I know about football. <laughs> watch the Super Bowl, uh, but don't stop raising these issues is that where you come down on this yeah we can we can celebrate and be critical at the same time 
we can understand that the NFL is more than happy to use black men, use black bodies and discard them when it's advantageous. I mean, like I said, when we talk about Brian Flores, I mean, they were they were incentivizing this man to tank games. Right. I mean, the things that they were doing in this case were so egregious, yet we act like, oh, you know, it's no big deal because we get enjoyment from it. Right. I mean, enjoying the game of football and understanding that the NFL is a problem institution, to put it lightly, um, you know, I think is is something that we have to do. Why well, I challenge some of those callers who were calling in to, you know, saying to me that I needed to be more empathetic to the plights of these poor black kids who were getting lifted out of the ghetto uh, by these opportunities to play that the small number, because you're right, we're talking about a small number of folks. I says, you guys love the game so much. Why don't you challenge the NFL owners to do more and use your voices, use your, your viewing power, because obviously you have a lot of power. Uh, so. I'm with you. We definitely can do both. We can celebrate the two black quarterbacks. We can celebrate the sister that was the agent, first black woman agent to have a, a, a client play in the Super Bowl. We can celebrate her. We can celebrate all the other great black talent that we saw on the field last night while at the same time uh, continuing to raise our voices about the exploitive nature of the industry as a whole and of the owners. I, I want to shift gears a little, Professor Curry, and talk about the college board. I, I'm sure you and Dr. Carter think a whole lot about this because you are in academia. And yeah. here's the college board now saying, well, wait a minute, we're being used by the Florida Department of Education. Yes, we were in communication with them. Yes, we were cordial to them, but we didn't expect uh, DeSantis to politicize our communications. Uh, he defamed us. He distorted, you know, what we said to him. And we did not change the curriculum for AP Black Studies because of conversations with his Department of Education. We did it because we believed it was, you know, in their words, the right thing to do. What are you to make of this argument that they now seemingly are coming forward because they've experienced such a backlash to the way they've handled it and, and really just botch the whole rolling out of this AP African-American studies courses. I mean, it seems just to be face saving, right? It's like, hey, the, the sense has been very clear. He's against critical race theory. He's tried to, you know, implicate uh, college professors as well as the high school curriculum, which is this, which this is about. So we can't, we have to look at it within the politicized scheme of what's going on in the rest of the country, right? The conservative platform is that there should be no discussions of race. There shouldn't be any criticisms of, of white America, that black people don't have a say in how they perceive their own histories and their plight and resistance for human rights. And this, this, this censorship uh, of the AP, you know, black history uh, course of the black studies course is just another example of that. Whether or not DeSantis is trying to politicize their speech, maybe or maybe not. But what is important is that the changes they made to include things like black conservatism, the kind of watering down they have of very specific topics, especially in the black radical tradition, and their their use of, say, the, the rights political platform, right, to say that certain modes of black thinking, be it black Marxist or black feminist or contemporary queer theory, et cetera, don't have any kind of teeth that substantiates knowledge exchange is not. Nonsense. Now, we have to remember this, that, you know, for a long time I taught in Texas, 
So a major part of the platform in Texas was the same thing. It was about reinterpreting what uh, the Atlanta slave trade was, right? That they wanted to talk about black people who were enslaved as uh, not even indentured servants, right? But immigrants or employees. So there, there is a revision of American history and, and there is a watering down of the ideas that black resistance really is in itself ideological. They, there's this idea that America's great, so we don't have to talk about black resistance as trying to refute some white great nation. So they're trying to say, listen, we can't we don't even want to talk about America's white supremacists. That's the context, right? That's the context. So the college mm-hmm. boards debate with DeSantis, whether or not this this is politicized, whether or not they actually water it down, uh, I think has to be looked at in that vein. There's a real stake here. The stake is black people have written lots of academic texts that have knowledge. The college boards, both from DeSantis and their sides, have changed that. The question is why and what effect are they trying to garner in de-radicalizing black students about their history and their actual uh, claims to political freedom in the continued fight for civil rights? Yeah, a couple of things are happening as this argument is, is being played out now in the public. We see more Republican states doing more following in DeSantis is uh you know, his following his playbook, following what Texas has done, as you indicated what Texas did while you were there. While we see these cons- uh, Democratic states, Professor Carter, uh, Connecticut and Rhode Island and some Democratic states trying to do just the opposite, trying to expand Black history, trying to make sure that students do have access to Black history. I, I was struck by some of the arguments that are, you know, apparently were taking place inside these private rooms between the Department of Education of Florida and the college board, like Black Panthers came up, and whether there should be a text or you know conversations in these history classes about the Black Panthers, and the Florida Department of Education saying, well, to teach about it is try is trying to indoctrinate students in the ideology of Black Panthers. Uh, in the same way, reparations came up. One of the other terms that they wanted to remove, intersectionality, uh, wanting to remove that from this curriculum as well. And then you have this Professor Marvin Dunn saying, look, I'm 82 years old, I'm retired, but I am going to do everything I can do to make sure that students in Florida are taught Black history. What, what should professors like yourself be doing in this moment, particularly if you are in a state like Florida that is saying you cannot teach certain topics that we know are critical to black and white and Latino and Asian and any student in the classroom understanding you know, black folks and our position in this country. Well, let me look, I think universities, particularly for non-tenured or that means people who don't have sort of permanence in the institution is very dangerous. And with the Florida, law does is a step farther, right? Because anyone can report you for anything. So somebody could be in Tennessee, somebody could be in Texas and say, you know what? Dr. Carter is teaching X in her class. So I don't like it. And I want you to investigate. And that's the really insidious part of this because it's going to have a chilling effect. And what faculty can do, I mean, people can strike, but what is more likely to do, people are going to leave the state if they are mobile. The people who are able to get tenure jobs or tenure track jobs in other places are likely to flee. Give our students the truth of the matter. I mean, I learned lots of things in my history courses that didn't indoctrinate me or turn me into something. I did not want to be a slaveholder, for example, just because (laughs) I learned about lots of them, like George Washington, like Thomas Jefferson, right? Like I didn't want to become a slaveholder. So that's kind of nonsense, that language. 
is really there because what they're saying is anything that makes us uncomfortable, we don't want to do. Now, unfortunately for young faculty, for adjunct faculty, that puts them in a very precarious position. I think for those who are tenured, and you see it, faculty are protesting, faculty are doing what they can. And I think you will probably find some brave souls who will teach what they're going to teach anyway. And, you know, say the heck with it. Because the truth is the students that are taking your classes are choosing to take those classes because they want to learn those things. It's not about like, you have to take this class and you have to learn these things. And I tell students all the time, you just have to be open to the material. You don't have to like it. You don't have to believe, you don't have to agree with it. But you will You raise a really good point about this argument about indoctrination. No one says that when we learn about, you know, George Washington or so-called great presidents, or we learn about slave owners, that that makes us want to be that person. Uh, and they don't ever talk about how uncomfortable having to learn about all of these topics of, of Black oppression are to Black kids, always about how uncomfortable some of these topics may make white kids feel. So there's all this emphasis on how uncomfortable they may feel and never any conversation about how a little Black kid feels having to learn about the Ku Klux Klan or Jim Crow or all of these laws that oppress African-Americans. So uh, such a one-sided hypocritical argument that's being well, made. They won't learn that either now because they're trying <laughs> to get rid of all this history of white domestic terrorism in these courses. Yeah. Yeah, hold that thought. We're going to talk about not only this continued effort to suppress Black history, but also the richest Black mothers and their babies are twice as likely to die as the richest white mothers and their babies. What's up with that? Why are Black women dying in childbirth when they're affluent, when their affluent white uh, colleagues are surviving and their babies are surviving? And Chelsea Chris's mom joins us in our hour two to talk about the one-year anniversary of her daughter death. Stay with us. KBLA Talk 1580 News, Traffic and Sports up next. Ariva time is the right time. More of Ariva Martin in real time when we come forward. forward. There's no time like the present. Let's get back to more of Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. This is Ariva Martin in real time, and I'm your host, Ariva Martin. We are tracking today's trendy news, including the White House downing of three unidentified objects, while it and China are pointing the fingers at each other about who is surveilling who. No real answers, but we are certain that the U.S. is involved in reporting on what that balloon is that was down over Montana. Uh, we know that rescue efforts have been made to recover uh, some remains from the balloon to tell us exactly what China is up to. Uh, some folks are asking, Ron DeSantis, is he the next Scott Walker? You remember Scott Walker? He was the golden boy of the Republican Party, was supposed to become the next GOP presidential candidate. Uh, if you don't remember him, <laughs> that says a lot about why the question is being asked about Ron DeSantis. And 35,000 Dead in that 7.2 uh, earthquake that hit Syria and Turkey last week. We continue to pray for those families. We know rescue teams from all over the world, including right here in Los Angeles, are deployed to Turkey to try to help with humanitarian efforts. And in our second hour today, we're going to be talking with April Simpkins. She is a mental health advocate. Her daughter, Chesley Chris, we all became to know and love. U.S. Miss USA 2019 died of suicide a year ago today. Uh, April 
pay tribute to her daughter uh, in a very special uh, post that she did on social media. And she's going to talk about mental health in young women like her daughter. We're going to talk to a mental health expert about why we keep seeing these rising rates of suicide, particularly amongst African-Americans. Uh, I am joined now by Professor Tommy Curry. He's at the University of Edinburgh and Professor Naomi Carter. She is at the University of Maryland. They are my experts today, and we are breaking down today's news. I, uh, Professor Carter, I was disturbed by this new report. It says the richest Black mothers and their babies are twice as likely to die as the richest white mothers and their babies. We know that the Black maternity or maternal mortality rates uh, are just unbelievable in this country, that if you are a Black woman, having birth or giving birth in this country is worse and more deadly than giving birth in a third world country. And this report just confirms what we also have known for years. It doesn't matter what your economic status is. It doesn't matter how educated you are. You can be the most educated Black woman, be the richest Black woman, but your your likelihood of survival and the likelihood of the survival of your baby is not comparable to your peer who may have the same education level as you and the same income level, but they happen to be white. How did, I mean, when you hear reports like that, and you've heard them before, but what's your reaction? I mean, that's unsurprising. I mean, nothing changes systematically about how or systemically about how the world views you just because you happen to be wealthy. People see race first. Quite frankly, I mean, when we think about people that we know, like Serena Williams, right, one of the most identifiable sports figures in tip top shape, and she almost died having her baby, and she's married to a rich white man, and she's rich in her own right. So we know that wealth is not a cloak. I think why this study is so important is that it shows it in real ways, that it's not about economic status. It has to be about something more. The care that people are, are experiencing in these hospital settings, the fact that people are not listening to black women when they say that they're in pain or they're not paying attention when they see that black women are swollen, other things that might indicate that their blood pressure is high. I mean, we see that and we know, I mean, these same studies confirm that black mothers and babies do better when they have a black care provider, which tells mm -hmm. you something about the training and the in environment. Um, of medical schools and also hospitals that are showing that Black people cannot expect um, a level playing field when it comes to their health care provision. Um, the fact that people are wealthy, I think, um, drives it home because we know that wealthier parents on every metric, their children do better. They're not having less risky pregnancies. They just have more money and are more likely to be tended to and can afford um, better care. But also the medical professionals are more likely to view those parents as compliant, more likely to um, to bring their children back for follow-ups, more likely to follow doctor's orders. So I think there's a lot that's happening here, but we also know that there's something that money can't remedy, stress of being black and all that kind of stuff that also is happening outside of the care provision space. Yeah, I just wanna correct myself. I said that earthquake in Syria and Turkey was 7.2, it was actually a 7.8 earthquake and it has proven to be incredibly deadly. Um, Again, our prayers are with those families. Uh, what you said, Professor Carter, is so on point, but I still think it's shocking, Professor Curry, when we think about race and we think about income, and there are many people that think, wow, when I get enough money or when I get whatever that magical dollar figure is, I'm going to have it made. 
I'm going to be able to walk into a restaurant and, you know, not be left standing for 15 minutes as white people walk by me and get seated. I'm going to be able to walk in a store and nobody's going to follow me around to make sure I'm not stealing anything, that the police aren't going to stop me because I'm in my fancy foreign sports car. There is still this sense that money differentiates people in this country more so than race. Uh, What is your reaction to the study about Black women and and the mortality rates around childbirth, but also how do we ever get, you know, should we be getting comfortable with this notion that money does not change the reality that Black folks in this country face? Uh, Absolutely. I think we not only have to get comfortable with the idea that that class doesn't protect us from racism or anti-Blackness, but this is in fact a global and international phenomenon. So just as the CDC reports that black women generally are two to three times more likely to die of childbirth, in the UK, black women are four times more likely to uh, experience uh, maternal mortality than their white counterpart. So you can switch the geographies and get the same kind of outcome. What we're actually observing here is what we talk about uh, as an idea of uh, diminishing returns. Diminishing returns means that black Americans um, do not receive the same kind of health returns of higher socioeconomic status as whites do generally. Now, this is because of higher levels of discrimination, implicit bias, clinical negligence. This all means that Black Americans in general will have worse health outcomes than their white counterparts, to, regardless of class status. And we also see, also see this in educational attainment. So the higher education one gets is assumed to have a protective effect uh, uh, on, on the kinds of disease, comorbidities, and the health outcomes of a specific population. When you're looking at Black Americans, uh, you don't see that same kind of protective benefit. Many educated and even middle class and upper class Black Americans have very similar health outcomes than as lower socioeconomic status Blacks or Blacks who are poor and working class. So this means that this fundamental notion of structural racism and anti-Blackness um, operates as a separate and independent system of oppression. In America, to maintain the myth and the virtue of American democracy, we say, oh, well, this is just a class issue. This is a big conversation even in the UK right now. No, it's not really racism. It's just classism, right? Because once we solve the class issue and address poverty, then everyone has similar outcomes. But when you look at the NHS, just like when you look at the outcome, the data released by the CDC, what we see operating is that across the board, not just with Black women, Black men, Black children, et cetera, that these democracy demographies are designated for death and dying. They have higher rates of disease, higher rates of neglect, higher mortality outcomes. We saw this with COVID-19, higher rates of cancer on top of the other things that we can mark like police, homicide, and other other forms of lethal assassination and engagement. So overall, we're looking at how we live in racist environments that are actually making us more likely to die or live unhealthy lives as a function of of enforcing Black inferiority in the nation. Yeah, it's really depressing. I guess we just have to call it what it is. Every day, it seems like there's some new report out. Uh, Last week, it was uh, Black students at predominantly white universities reported experiencing more discrimination uh, and that that discrimination that they experienced caused many to drop out of school, some to not even consider going to graduate school. This week, it's a report out about, uh, you know, the report about the uh, maternal mortality rates. There's also a report that was just out about Black teens and suicide rates being on the increase. I I think at some point we just have to ask ourselves, when does it stop? Do we ever get a break? Are we ever going to get a break? 
And I guess if it's up to Ron DeSantis, if he gets to be the presidential nominee for Republicans, we won't get a break. If anything, he probably doubles down. Uh, we're going to talk about that. Is he a flash in the pan like Scott Walker, or is he likely to be the next Republican nominee for president in 2024? Stay with us, KBLA Talk 1580. When we come, she's the real deal in real time. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. The way we spend our time defines who we are. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. The big question lots of Republicans are asking each other and themselves is, is Donald Trump going to be their candidate for 2024? He has been striking, uh, you know, throwing some punches at Ron DeSantis. And Ron DeSantis has been pretty composed, hasn't hit back, has decided that he's going to be the more disciplined candidate. But the question some are asking is, is he going to be the next Scott Walker? Some people may be saying, who's Scott Walker? Dr. Carter, you remember Scott Walker. <laughs> you study politics. You remember when he was the rising star in the Republican Party, he was supposed to be the next presidential uh, candidate for the GOP. And now many people won't even remember that he was governor of a state. What are you thinking about Ron DeSantis? Look, I mean, I think Ron DeSantis is positioning himself um, for that top spot. I mean, this is evidenced by the fact that Donald Trump saw fit to take a swipe at him. I think a lot of what we were talking about or what Professor uh, Curry was talking about moments ago with the with the um, college board stuff in Florida and, and narrowing what kids can learn about African-American history, it plays well, right? I mean, that CRT uh, debacle won a lot of elections around the country, including in Virginia and other places, right? So we've seen this uh, be, you know, chum for the uh, Republican base. So I think DeSantis is definitely going to run. I don't know that he'll be Scott Walker because in some ways DeSantis isn't as polarizing as a Scott Walker, even though, you know, he was beloved by conservatives in his state. I mean, he had you know, he survived a recall election. I think that says something about um, his lack of appeal. Um, and I think he was perhaps too polarizing for the national stage. But of course, Donald Trump was able to come in and do much of the same stuff, use much of the same rhetoric um, and be successful. So I don't know that DeSantis will be the flash in the pan, if you will, that Scott Walker was. But Scott Walker is still out here. You know, he's still moving around in, in conservative circles, maybe not top of the ticket. He maybe doesn't have the charisma. Um, but I definitely think, um, you know, if Republicans aren't careful, yeah, very well, uh, Donald Trump could be um, their candidate again. I think many are probably hoping not, but they have not stopped feeding that base either. So they know um, they're willing to do anything um, right. to win. I know, Dr. Curry, you maybe don't uh, bother yourself with U.S. politics now that you are not at the University of Texas, but What's your take? Uh, is Ron DeSantis helping or hurting himself by not hitting back when Donald Trump calls him the uh, sanctimonious? You know, he comes up with a nickname. That's how you know uh -huh. you're getting under his skin is because he gives you a nickname. You got his attention. You think DeSantis helps or hurts himself by, you know, striking right now? He's not striking back. Is that good or bad? I think it's smart politically. Uh, you know, unfortunately, American politics still play out here in the UK every day. So it's always a topic of conversation. Look, I think I think DeSantis is is, is playing playing the cards right because 
Trump is largely seen as now the kind of, you know, frantic and extremist right wing party guard. Now, he certainly has popular support and public support. But I, I, I think that we have to really understand something. Trump's role was to shift the political discourse of what was acceptable for right wing political platforms in the United States during his presidency. The scientist is benefiting from that. So while Trump can now be viewed now be viewed as an extremist for the Republican Party, the Santos could come in and see see himself as a moderate, really fulfilling both the conservative and the paleoconservative kind of alt-right naturalization of what right-wing politics means. So what does that mean concretely for black people? It means a more authoritarian type of government. What do we mean by that? That the scientist is going to use things like Trump executive orders, et cetera, to enforce certain kind of political ideas and their proliferation throughout various U.S. institutions. We saw this when people were told that they could no longer invite speakers to state-funded universities to talk about critical race theory. The second thing we know about the scientist is that he's going to limit what black people can say in in terms of resistory and protest speech. So what, he, what he's doing in Florida right now is already saying, well, look, what's the best way to control ideas of revolution or black resistance? Well, you don't teach them to people. Now, this is one of the things that the alt-right started back in 2016 and 2017, even when I was attacked when I was teaching at Texas A&M. People thought that this is just some kind of random white supremacist attack on college professors, but that wasn't the idea at all. The Republican Party recognized that most liberal uh, white Americans come from universities. So if they wanted to change the kind of support that liberals had overall in the country, they had to stop the proliferation of liberal left ideology in the university. So that's why you get a place like DeSantis and all these universities and and, uh, local governments across the country stopping people from learning about black history, black revolution, and critical race theory. So what DeSantis is doing is he he exists at a different moment. He doesn't have to attack Trump because the party's not gonna going to go with Trump because he's just too alienating. But when he comes in as the moderate, true-blooded, right-wing Republican, uh, you know, candidate, he gets to do everything the alt-right was doing now under a much more traditionally accepted platform three or four years after the the lunacy of Trump of a Trump administration. Well, well, let me pose this to you, Dr. Carter, because there's someone out there named Mike Pence who says he should occupy that moderate Republican lane. Now, we see he was just subpoenaed, has to appear before a grand jury, talk about those private conversations he had with Donald Trump leading up to January 6th and on the morning of January 6th. Now, he wrote about it in his book, got paid, you know, gazillions of dollars to write a book, but he won't come forward voluntarily and talk to the Department of Justice. He wouldn't talk to the congressional committee that was investigating January 6th. I'm asking myself, how are you even qualified to serve as the president of the United States and you have to be given a subpoena to talk about what you know as it relates to someone trying to overthrow our democracy? Yet he feels like he should be president and he should occupy that moderate lane that Professor Curry is talking about. So are we going to see a DeSantis, Mike Pence, uh, head to head? Who knows? I mean, none of these people are moderates, uh, to to Dr. Professor Curry's point. And look, he wasn't a good governor of Indiana. Um, I mean, he's one of these people that was mediocre and he failed upward. He made Donald Trump look respectable because he did the most basic thing of his job, which is to respect the limits of his authority. I mean, the bar is in hell for these people. When you talk about what passes for professionalism, these people are not conservatives. They're not Republican. They're right-wing extremists. And the Republican Party label is just a shield, right? Because these people, many of them are in league with white domestic terrorists and they will do anything they can to keep power. To your point about Pence, 
his allegiance is more in line with the same white supremacists that wanted to kill him on January 6th <laughs> than to actually being a decent person and saying, hey, you know, what's happened here on January 6th should have never happened. It was a problem. It was treasonous. I mean, the fact that these people are entertaining a Donald Trump run again right. tells us tells something us all about we really this. need to know. Tells, exactly. Yeah. And again, I think um, Professor Curry is right on in the sense that these people can kind of paint Donald Trump as the outer limit of their party. Meanwhile, in many cases, they're doing more right? To right, undermine but they our to, health and safety than even a Donald Trump. Um, right, they and, get to pose as the adults in the room. I love what you say, Dr. Carter, uh, Mike Pence failed up. We see so many uh, white folks like Mike Pence who fell up. And if something similar would happen to an African-American, they fall, all right, but it is not up. They fall down. And many times they stay down. I want to thank uh, both of you uh, Professor uh, Tommy Curry, Dr. Niambi Carter for joining me. Appreciate your analysis. Appreciate your insight. Thank you so much for joining me today uh, to help us make sense of today's trending news. Uh, when we come forward, I'm going to be talking with Chesley Chris's mom, April Sim Simpkins. She is a mental health professional, and she's going to be talking about uh, mental health issues, obviously suicide rates that are on the increase. Also going to be joined by Dr. Patrice Douglas, a mental health professional, try to get you all the information you need if you or someone you know is in a mental health crisis. Uh, we're also going to be taking your calls in hour two. This is Ariva Martin in real time. I'm your host, Ariva Martin. After news, traffic, and sports, hour two. Chesley Chris's mom, April Simpkins. Stay with us, KBLA Talk 1580. I'm taking my own freedom, putting it in my song, singing loud and strong. KBLA 1580 Santa Monica. Adjustable mattress sets. Plus, get a $300 instant gift. Good towards sleep accessories. Find your dream bed at Mattress Firm. Then cozy up on your new bed because there's nothing better than staying in. This is the KBLA Sports Minute with Ray Richardson. The Lakers are back in action tonight at Portland. LeBron James is questionable with a sore left ankle. LeBron has not played since becoming the NBA's all time scoring leader last Tuesday. The Lakers are five games below 500, but only two games away from qualifying for the NBA's play-in round. The top five teams in this week's AP Men's College Basketball Rankings, Alabama, Houston, Purdue, UCLA, and Kansas. First time for UCLA in the top five since January 31st, 2022. The Bruins have been in the top 10 for seven straight weeks. No debates, no speculation, just the info you need. That's your KBLA Sports Minute. I'm Ray Richardson. This sports report was brought to you by Original Taco Pete. Aaron at Original Taco Pete's. Come in today for our tasty seasoned black taco. We're at 3272 West Slauson off Crenshaw or call 323-348-4441. What we're going to do right here is go back. Go back. KBLA Talk 1580 is turning up the frequency in Black History Month. Be on the lookout for some familiar faces as the Metro K-Line is currently wrapped in KBLA Talk 1580. Make sure you visit the KBLA Talk 1580 online store now open for business with all kinds of fresh merch. Don't miss a single episode of The Motivator, Les Brown's month-long radio residency. You've got to be hungry. Weekdays at 11 a.m. and 6 p.m. Exclusively on KBLA Talk 1580. And afternoons just got real.
Radio. Real people, real talk, real issues, real solutions. Be sure to check out Ariva Martin in real time on your way home weekday afternoons from 4 to 6. Turning up the frequency all Black History Month long. We're unapologetically progressive. KBLA Talk 1580 and we don't black down. NFL MVP Patrick Mahomes leads Kansas City's Chiefs to a 38-35 win over the Philadelphia Eagles in Super Bowl 57. And after years away from the stage, Rihanna was rocking the mic at the Super Bowl halftime, and she gave a nod to her own Fenty Beauty when she took a moment and powdered her nose. Some folks didn't quite get that, but that was a brilliant PR move by a boss lady who is known not only for her music, but also for her beauty brand, the beauty brand, which actually made her a billionaire. That's yes, a billionaire. Three unidentified objects shot down since Friday pose a threat to civilian air traffic, according to U.S. intelligence agencies. Uh, agents, the College Board is hitting back, saying it regrets that it even engaged in conversations with the Florida Department of Education and accuses Ron DeSantis of defaming them. They say that they did not make changes to AP Black Studies courses because of their interactions with the Florida governor. And in a new report, the United States says that the richest Black mothers and their babies are twice as likely to die as the richest white mothers and their babies. So it doesn't matter how much money you have. If you are Black, you still experience racism in our medical system, so much so that Black mothers and Black babies are dying at disproportionate rates when compared to their white peers. We are recognizing women who will have their faces on the quarter this year, including uh, the first Afro-Latina, Miss Celia Cruz, who will be on the U.S. quarter. She's a Cuban uh, singer known as the Queen of Salsa and one of my favorites, writer, Lawyer and activist Pauli Murray will also be on the U.S. quarter. Some folks are asking, what happened to Harriet Tubman on that $20 bill? Well, the U.S. Department of Finance Department says that that's still going to happen, but not as quickly as some of us had hoped. Uh, And we are still watching the death toll rise in Syria and Turkey as the 7.8 earthquake that uh, hit last Monday has just taken lives of over 35,000 people. So proud that rescue teams from right here in Los Angeles have been deployed uh, to participate in the humanitarian efforts that are taking place to help uh, find victims of that horrific earthquake. Again, our prayers and thoughts are with those families. When we come forward, we're going to talk about a very, very uh, tough subject, very tough, but very real subject. Uh, and this is Ariva Martin in real time, and, and we try to keep it real. So even though this is a tough subject, it's one that impacts African-Americans, and it's one that we have an obligation to talk about, and it's suicide rates. And there's a CDC report out that says that suicide amongst African-Americans, yes, amongst Black people, is up by 20%. In my big interview, I'm going to talk with Chesley Chris's mom. It's been uh This is the one year, almost one year anniversary or a little over one year, one year and two weeks, actually, anniversary of death by suicide. Her daughter, beautiful Chesley, USA, Miss USA 2019, died by suicide. We're going to talk to her mom, who's become an incredible mental health advocate. 
And we're going to talk to Dr. Patrice Douglas. She's going to help us uh, identify warning signs and talk to us about what is causing this incredible increase in suicide amongst African-Americans. All of today's trending news, analysis, and unfiltered opinions right here on Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580 when we come forward. She's the real deal in real time. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. There's no time like the present. Let's get back to more of Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. You are listening to Ariva Martin in real time, and I'm your host, Ariva Martin. In my second hour, I am taking your calls. I want to hear from you. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call at 1-800-920-1580. Again, that's 1-800-920-1580, or post a comment on YouTube, and we will answer your question. In this hour, we are talking about suicide rates. We're talking about mental health. And I'm joined by someone who has become a friend who I've had an opportunity to interview on multiple occasions. And I identify with her so much because she is a mother of several daughters and I'm the mother of a couple of daughters and she is such a brave soul. I'm always just so inspired by her courage. I'm talking about April Simpkins. April is the mother of Chesley Chris and you all will remember the beautiful Chesley. She was a lawyer. She was a entertainment correspondent. Uh, she was a brilliant uh, professional and she was Miss USA 2019. And about a year and two weeks uh, ago, she died by suicide. And I was reading just the most beautiful tribute that uh, April wrote about her daughter. She posted this on January 30th saying uh, the pain that she experienced. I just want to read a little of it because it was so beautiful. It just resonated with me. Uh, And this is in the words of April. A year ago, the day started off like any other. I had no idea that would be your first day in heaven. I've missed you every day, baby girl, every day. Thank you for being with me in some of my loneliest moments, for bringing me so many amazing and wonderful people into my life. Thank you for living a life so full of good deeds that not even death can slow down the trajectory of your works. Your legacy will continue. There are many of us who will see to that. Those are the beautiful words of April Simpkins written about her daughter, Chesley. Thank you so much, April, for joining me. Thank you for having me. Thank you. I'm also joined today by Dr. Patrice Douglas. She is a mental health professional. Uh, She knows all too well about suicide in the African-American community. And I'm so grateful to have her here to help us make sense of these horrific CDC uh, numbers. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Douglas, for joining us as well. Thank you. Happy to be here. April, I want to start with you as a mother. And, you know, I've, I've, you and I have been in this conversation before, and I, I guess I keep thinking when these numbers come out that there's going to be some good news. Uh, but not only is it the CDC report that came out that talked about 20% increase in suicide amongst African-Americans, I saw another study today that said that as a result of the pandemic, uh, that it's taken a harsh toll on teen girls' mental health. 
and that 60% of these teen girls are reporting feelings of persistent sadness or hopelessness, uh, and that many of these girls have thought about as many as 30% said they have seriously considered attempting suicide. Mm -hmm. And when you hear those numbers, uh, you know, what, what, how does it just make you feel given that you as a mom have experienced the, the unthinkable loss of a child by suicide? There's so much sadness. Um, yeah, as you read those words, it brought back to me the words that Chesley left in her suicide text to me. And those, Ariva, were her words. She said, when she wrote this note to me, I love you, mom, you're my best friend, the person I've lived for for years. I wish I could stay with you, but I cannot bear the crushing weight of persistent sadness, hopelessness, and loneliness any longer. I've never wanted, I've never told you these feelings because I've never wanted you to worry and because I hoped they would eventually change, but I know they never will. When you, said that it just honestly it took my mind right back to her exact words um that she had been feeling those things that she felt she lost her sense of purpose um as amazing as she was um in the aftermath of Chevy's passing just from comments I would hear things I would see posted it really said to me, there's so much that we don't understand. There's so many assumptions that we make when we tend to tackle this from those assumptions. And um, I've also learned that depression is not a monolith. It looks different or it's triggered by different things and different people. And so I am always quick when I speak to talk about, you know, Chesley and what she was dealing with. But there is such a host of things that our young people are dealing with um, on a regular basis that um, it's, it's truly disheartening. Yeah, I love, April, that you are always so clear about the fact that depression is not a monolith, because I think when people think of people who are depressed, they think of people who can't get out of the bed. They think of people who don't change their clothes, who don't shower, who maybe stop eating or maybe start eating compulsively. And it's hard for people. And I remember a year and two weeks ago when I heard about your daughter's death, it was hard for me to wrap my brains around it because I saw her, you know, it's like a young me. Mm -hmm. Here she was, well, she has a, she had a degree I don't even have. She had a JD MBA, I have a JD, but you know, she was a lawyer and she was a correspondent. She was a journalist. She was a TV personality. And for those of us on the outside, she had everything, drop mm -hmm. dead, gorgeous, so successful in such a short period of time in her life, mm -hmm. 29 years, I mean, had accomplished more than people in their 50s or some people in their entire lives. So it was hard for us to understand how can a, somebody so beautiful and so successful in the way we saw them be so sad. And, and you have always been so honest about helping dispel the myth mm. that your daughter wore a mask. She smiled on the red carpet because that was her job. Uh, yes. Do you think people are getting that, April? I know you've been, you've spent 
the last six months, if not more, on TV, on radio, trying to get that message across? Do you think people are getting it? I do think so. One thing that I learned in this journey um, is how many people identified immediately with high-functioning depression and anxiety. Almost didn't know what that was, but sent me messages like, that's me, I'm her, that's me, I'm her. I do these things, I have this, I've accomplished all these things, and still I'm battling this. And I had the opportunity to talk with Dan Gillison, who was the CEO of NAMI, the National Alliance on Mental Illness. And we talked about this very thing. And he talked about this being such a trait of the type A. And um, I, I see that as a type A, that is who we are. But that doesn't make us immune from mental illness. Um, it just means that we're powered through so much. Other people may not see it. And um, and I want people who are battling that battle to not be afraid to come out of the darkness and say, I'm struggling or I'm battling or I'm not okay. And those of us receiving that are able to point them to resources or offer support or kindness. Uh, Dr. Douglas, do you think we're doing enough in this country? Clearly, we're having more discussions about mental health because high-profile people, whether it's Simone Biles, uh, you know, other athletes, entertainers are talking about mental health. But this this concept of being super successful yet struggling with mental health issues, do you think that conversation is happening enough in circles where it matters? I definitely think that the conversation is occurring a lot more these days. Um, with the pandemic, um, it did create a lot of awareness of how fragile our mental health is. And so as we're coming out of the pandemic, as they say, and we're trying to get back to this busy routine, we're realizing that we really don't have the capacity to do that. And we really don't know where to turn because we do have to be stable. We do have to survive. And so while the conversations are happening, the solutions to these issues are still, you know, to, to be determined on how we can really be effective in helping everyone with their mental health with the shortages that we have in the healthcare system. I'm struck by the numbers, the CDC number, 20% increase in suicide. Amongst Black people, I, now, I think before the show started, you told me that suicide is up amongst all people, so we're not the only demographic that's been impacted, but 20%, and I can remember a time when people would say things, and I know, April, you and I are about the same age, we can remember when people said, well, Black people didn't kill themselves, Black mm -hmm. people didn't commit suicide, you know, that was kind of this wives' tale, this urban myth that somehow we were immune that that was something that white people did. So when we hear this 20% number, Dr. Douglas, what, what unpack that for us? What's happening with black folks in particular? Well, to start with, that is a myth because um, suicide ideation and suicidal deaths have been around um, since slavery days because we were used as medical experiments. The slaves would pray that they wouldn't even make it to the summer because that's when they primarily would use us um, for reproductive um, experiments or other things. So it's been around for a while. We don't talk about it, um, but it's been around for generations. And a lot of it is the fatigue of, you know, I'm not feeling very well. 
Um, I'm not mentally strong. As we know, we hear about the stories from, you know, previous generations. What got them through tough times was their faith, their determination, and their strength in their mind. So when you are trying to keep up with the same mentality and the same strength as, you know, your loved ones or previous generations, you're realizing that you don't have that capacity necessarily and you're starting to feel weak. You're starting to feel like you are not as strong as a strong person as you should be as a black American. And so you start to wonder if your life is even worth it. On top of that, when we do talk about our problems, people don't really seem to think that it's a thing. There's research that shows that uh, medical providers often misdiagnose Black Americans because they don't even believe we experience depression because we're not running around crying and, you know, looking sad. And so even when we do go seek help, they're not even getting it right. So these are the reasons why we struggle as a people to talk to people, to um, identify that we're struggling and to find solutions to help those issues. Yeah, I'm taking your calls at 1-800-920-1580. If you know someone that's struggling with depression or you think has a mental health issue and they're not talking about it, they're not seeking help, give us a call. We want to hear from you. Uh, April, one of the things that strikes me is, is this kind of generational differences. So, you know, we grew up in this generation where you didn't talk a lot about your problems and you just tough, you know, you toughened up. If something was going on, you just, you know, you just had to stand up to your adversity. You had to figure out a way to overcome it. And if you did talk about it, you may be were characterized as a whiner, as a complainer, uh, as ungrateful even. But younger people, my daughters in particular, and my daughters are around the age of your kids, your, your, your older kids, I know you have some younger kids too, but they are more comfortable going to therapy, talking about therapy, talking about you know, the need to protect their mental health. Uh, was that a conversation that you had in your household? You know, And, and how did you navigate that between teaching kids to be tough, right? Preparing them for the harshness of the world, but also teaching them to be in touch with their feelings and not being afraid to say that they were overwhelmed or that they needed help. Sure. In our household, um, my husband and I, David is my second husband, we started going to counseling before we were married, mostly because we thought we're coming from different worlds. I brought in family. He had never been married, didn't have any children. We wanted to understand how to navigate. And we were very open with the children. So we've always talked about the importance of counselors and what counselors can provide. Um, you know, one of the challenges, in my opinion, that younger children have, my children included, is finding safe spaces. And so we don't talk to our children about being tough. We actually tell our children, show your emotions. It's okay, especially in our house. It's okay. Let's talk through it. What are you feeling? That's just common language for us. But by the same token, we talk to our children about using that language and being that vulnerable in a safe place. And if school isn't a safe place for you, or if the school bus is in a safe place for you, then come home to that safe space and let's talk about it. There are less and less safe spaces now for children. Now that we have social media and 24-hour television, there is no safety. We had safety. If you had a bully at school, you went home, the bully was at school. If somebody said something mean, it was in a note that eventually made it into the trash can. <laughs> but we had to post, put a stamp exactly, on it and mail it to you. Exactly, exactly. But our children don't have that. The bully followed them home right into their closed safe space. The bully can talk to every single person and it's there forever. 
it's a whole different place for our children. So Dr. Douglas, you hear April saying, you know, she has this very enlightened family. Her and her husband sat down, they went to counseling, they talked to their kids about these issues. Is that common in most African-American families where parents are being that open about counseling and mental health issues? Because that doesn't sound like what happens in a lot of those families that I know. So I just want to know in your practice, do you see a lot of Black families being as open and transparent as April and her husband are? Um, you know, I think it's maybe 50-50, maybe a little bit more on the side of no, right? Um, I don't think it's that the conversations are not happening in the families. It's the response that makes a difference, right? So if a child say like, you know, I had a hard day at work, oh, or a hard day at school, oh, you don't know nothing about hard. You know, I have to do this. I have to do that. So I don't think that it's that parents are not checking in. I think it's the response of how are they supporting? They're kind of comparing their day to their child or um, like April said, you know, children today, their school environment is way different than all of us have experienced with social media and things like that. So, you know, if a child does come to you and say, like, I'm depressed, oh, I'll give you something to be depressed about, you know, go do the dishes. You know, that's not really something that really helps you feel like you can have a safe space to talk to your parents or they'll understand you. So well, I would say we're having the conversations, but they're not always that great. But we as parents are screwing it up, is kind of what you're saying. And I'm going to just raise my hand to say I had that very same experience with my daughter, my oldest daughter. She's in business school at Columbia University, and she called me and was telling me about feeling like she had experienced microaggressions. She was feeling isolated. She had a lot of issues with some of the white students. And I immediately went to solutions, how she could solve it, what she could do. And she said to me, Mom, I don't really need your Arivaisms, your solutions to every problem. I just need you to listen. And boy, that was like a gut punch. I didn't sleep all night at five in the morning. I'm texting her and my other daughter who's in law school at Columbia, this long message apologizing, telling them how I grew up and how hard it was and how I was pushed and told just suck it up and work harder and be better. And you know all the stuff that black people over 40 were told by their parents. And that I had to unlearn some of that so mm. that I could listen more and not be so just jump to the solution oriented. But that was how I was raised by these strong black women. And I said, I don't fault them because they were raised by, you know, strong black women too. And they had to overcome a lot of adversity. And that is a real challenge and help us, Dr. Douglas, give us some tips as parents on how do we, you know, not so quickly want to gloss over those feelings that we were told to gloss over and to be able to listen and be present while at the same time offering some suggestions. I think that's where a lot of us who want to be there for our kids get perhaps kind of uh, off track and, and maybe mess things up. You know, I think as parents, um, it's your, you know, responsibility and your love language to support and fix the kids boo boo, right? If they're having a bad day or somebody was picking them at the playground, you want to go, you know, talk to the bully themselves. And so I don't think that parents often feel like they can just listen. They always have to listen and find something to make their child feel better. So ask your child, like, do you want me to just listen? Do you want me to give input? Ask, because one thing we know about, you know, young people, they'll tell you what they want. 
Um, a lot of times they want to come to you because they want you to be that safe space that their friends can't give them. But if you're going to tell them about your life story and how, you know, you didn't, you struggled, but you figured it out. a mile in school. Uh, yes. Like that's. Hold, hold that thought for me, Dr. Douglas. We got to take some news, sports and traffic. But when we come forward, more on mental health in the African-American community right here on KBLA Talk 1580. Ariva time is the right time. More of Ariva Martin in real time when we come forward. Forward. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. We are talking about the African-American community and mental health issues. Some startling reports out. One report said that amongst girls that 30% seriously considered attempting suicide and double that rate amongst boys. Another report out by the CDC says suicide rates are up 20% amongst African-Americans. I'm joined by April Simpkins. She is a mental health advocate. She is the mother of Chesley Chris, uh, Miss USA 2019, who died by suicide about a year and two weeks ago. And I'm joined by Dr. Patrice Douglas, who is a mental health professional. And we're talking about generational differences and how different generations may approach mental health. And I know, uh, Dr. Douglas, you said that parents need to ask their kids, is this one of these conversations where I should be listening exclusively or should I be trying to help problem solve? How difficult is that for you, April? Are you able to just be that listening mom uh, and not be that let me jump in and solve the problem mom? It takes so much practice. Um, you know, interestingly enough, my husband and I use that language um, when we talk to each other, he will say, or I will say, hey, I just need to vent. And that means he just needs to say something or, hey, I'm struggling with something. And I think our children pick that up from us. And we do give them room to vent. Um, and even if they want to vent about me to me, that's fine. Um, and I will listen. And so what we try to do is teach them how to do that in a healthy way and to not keep things pent up inside. Um, you know, I think it's interesting when we were talking before about, you know, kind of quieting that down when our children come to us. We are so busy with solutions and it hurts to see your child hurt or struggling, especially if you feel like you have that answer. And one thing I did learn to do with Chesley, because I knew for years that she was battling with um, depression, was to give everything she said its own space. Um, whether she was talking to me about a legal brief, she was nervous or studying or a question in on stage at pageant, I gave it the same weight because if it mattered to her in that moment, then it was important and I needed to listen. Not just hear her, but really just listen. And um, we kind of practice that with our other children, just learning how to listen. Yeah, I love your honesty about how difficult it is and how you have to practice. And, and I'm at that point mm -hmm. where I'm trying to recognize the generational differences and, and the need to listen, because I don't know if I ever really told my mother and grandmother growing up that I felt sad or felt lonely or whatever feelings I had. And I'm sure if I did, they probably told me, get over it. <laughs> you know, again, I love them to death. <laughs> They're deceased and they didn't mean any harm, but that's how they were taught. 
and we repeat what we learn as kids and you know we we become our parents in many ways uh, dr douglas help us understand some of the warning signs because chesley again for many was the picture of perfection had everything going for her but we know there are warning signs and oftentimes when i have this conversation with parents or, or loved ones what they feel is a lot of guilt because they say they didn't see the warning signs. They didn't pay attention to them. What are some of the warning signs that someone might be in a mental health crisis where they need professional help and they might be really thinking about suicide? So it's really interesting about the warning signs, right? Because it's like a checklist of things you should keep, you know, be aware of. But really when we look at people's lives, it doesn't look like a checklist. And so it is very easy to miss. But also, too, we as a society has been, you know, really good about hiding things. Right. And so a lot of times people really don't want you to know what the problem is or that they're suffering. So they will appear as normal. And so I think a lot of that, too, is that we do have to give each other grace that it's not that we necessarily don't care or that we're not paying attention is that they often make sure that we don't pay attention. So some of the things that we should look at as far as a black community, because some of that that checklist, it it works, but some of that stuff doesn't apply to us. Um, so if you're noticing that you rather hang out by yourself than go places, um, if you're recognizing that you um, are starting to think about what would life be like if you weren't here anymore and that nobody would miss you or nobody would even notice, that's pretty much not true. And that is a warning sign. If you're starting to lose focus or even in your relationships, um, you're not as intimate as often. Or in Black individuals, we often see our emotion as far as anger and irritation being a really big sign that if you don't even know where it's coming from, but you feel it every single day, your, your moods may be low. And that's kind of the concern with the Black community is that by the time we're at that place, um, we're in a crisis. So we don't even recognize that there was baby steps or different steps that were taking place that showed signs of depression, but because we were trying to ignore or try to push forward by the time that it gets to a place where it's a crisis, it's like you better do something fast and you better do something quick, which a lot of the resources that we have are not really crisis um, centered. They're more of long term. Um, so that is some of the things that we see in Black community as well as all of us pretty much have high functioning depression because when you look at other communities, we mask it so well. And so it's really hard to tell if somebody's going to work and they're cooking, but by the time they get home, they don't get off the couch and it's hard to peel themselves to go to bed, that that's a sign of depression. So it's really about just having that communication of how are you feeling today instead of how are you doing? Because we can easily just say fine, but how are you feeling? How's your body feeling? Checking in to those things can really help you identify if somebody is doing well or they're not. And I know, April, you talked about being in therapy. And what Dr. Douglas says is some of the solutions are long-term. They're not quick fixes. And I've heard a lot of people say that they don't believe in therapy, particularly mm -hmm. I've heard Black men say, you know, I don't want to go tell my problems to some white person or some woman or just anyone. And they, if they do go, they're expecting the therapist to give them solutions. And that doesn't happen in most therapy sessions. So how did you get okay with and comfortable with going to therapy and particularly going for, I remember you telling me for a long period of time. Oh, absolutely. And um, 
it honestly is probably something I consider to be part of my this life strategy is working with a therapist. Um, I, I have heard that from other people, from relatives of mine who say, I don't need that. I don't need all of that. I'm good. I pray on it. You should pray more. Um, just take a vacation. I hear all of these other solutions because I do think that there's a misunderstanding of what that counselor is doing for me. And, you know, sometimes she's catching my blind spot. I won't even realize I'm doing something repetitively until she says, hey, you know what I'm noticing is each time this happens, you take this path and let's mm. talk about that. Um, people who are close to me know that I see my counselor um, and someone who's really close to me who I work with will say things like this to me when I'm at work and she's a safe space for me. She'll say, April, I notice when you continue to clear your calendar of things, you fill it up again. Mm. Why are you doing that? And mm. I said to her, I don't even realize I'm doing that. And her words to me were, that's maybe something that you can write down and talk with your counselor about. Hey, that wow. to me is a safe space. And that is people realizing that I'm benefiting from this. And wow, that, I don't, that's a serious accountability partner, April. A hundred percent. My husband. She's like, it. girl, you need to talk to your therapist yes. about that. I yes, love because that. people in my safe space know I can't see my six o'clock. I can't see my blind spots. I may be right. doing things that I'm not realizing I'm doing it. Wow. And um, so when I talk to others about mental health and safe spaces, everybody isn't your safe space. You need to know who really has your back, who you really can confide in without judgment, without feeling like they're criticizing or shaming you, but they listen and support mm. you. Amen to that. Definitely. Everybody is not your safe space. When we mm. come forward, religion, Black folks, and mental health, right here on KBLA Talk 1580. She's the real deal. In real time. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. There's no time like the present. Let's get back to more of Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. This is Ariva Martin in real time, and this is Ariva Martin, your host. And we're tracking some startling news today from the CDC. That's the Center for Disease Control. And they're out with a new report that says suicide rates amongst African-Americans up by 20%. And in fact, that same report says that whites are the only demographic where they've seen an actual decline in suicide rates. Dr. Patrice Douglas is joining us as well as April Simpkins. April is a mental health advocate and Dr. Douglas is a mental health professional. Dr. Douglas, what? why the difference in the suicide rates amongst Blacks and whites, where whites have seen a decline in suicide rates over the last several years, where African-Americans and other minority groups, including Native Americans and Latinos, have seen an uptick in suicide rates. Definitely think it has to do with the oppression, the systematic racism. I mean, every single day, we are finding some type of news out there that one of us have been killed, whether it's due to police injustices in our neighborhoods. And so when you have these dynamics going on, you don't even have to necessarily be personally impacted, but the vicarious trauma of just hearing about how our lives don't matter 
you know, can be depressing enough. And so when we continue to see an increase in the unfairness and the injustices of Black people, it does make sense as to how our depression is going up as well as our hopelessness, as well as the areas of ages and genders that we normally don't see um, a lot of data in, they're increasing as well. It's not surprising that they're capturing that we are dying by suicide at alarming rates. Uh, April, I know you and Chesley talked a lot about her sadness, her depression. I know she had been in therapy for a while. I know from uh, interviews before that she had actually tried to uh, commit suicide even before a year ago. But did she ever talk about what Dr. Douglas just identified, that, that kind of community trauma, being a young woman who had to perhaps report on or be a part of news stories that involved uh, unarmed African-American men and women who were killed by police or just some of the community violence that we see. Did she ever talk about those things as being impactful in terms of how she felt? You know, she didn't talk about those things specifically um, as something greatly impacting her, but I'll tell you some of the things she did talk about. Um, she talked about colorism among the Black people. When she became Miss USA, uh, 2019, the news flashed that there were now three Black women who held these major titles. It was Chesley and Kayla Garris, her Miss Teen USA, and Mia Franklin, her friend, who was also Miss America. And so many comments came through telling Chesley she was not Black um, because she's biracial. Um, there was only one Black winner. The other two are just, you know, just that hurt her. Um, and traumatized her. Um, for Chesley, she, she was a Black woman. She was a proud, advocating Black woman. Um, when she would speak out as Miss USA on a number of topics, she did um, march in Black Lives Matter, um, marches after George Floyd's murder. And the number of people who were almost trying to put her back in a place. You, know, you wear that crown, you say, those are the things that would bother her, um, mm. that would strike her, that feeling of helplessness. Um, I'm not just this. I am more than that. And I do think that that is also a challenge for us in the Black community is constantly being put in our place if we try to rise to certain levels or step into conversations. And especially if there's someone on that high-functioning um, spectrum, to be stymied and stifled that way is mm. going to impact your mental health. Oh, wow. such a great point. Thank you for sharing that. Dr. Douglas, do you see that in your practice? I, I guess that's black on black bullying and attacks. And, you know, this has come up in the issue of Tyree Nichols, these five black officers who we watch brutalize Tyree Nichols, lots of black folks having that conversation about what does it mean that they're not white officers that killed Tyree Nichols and you know, not sure how to feel about that. And, and so April raises the issue of Black folks attacking her daughter because she wasn't quote unquote Black enough. And we know that even if both of her parents were Black, if, if you talk a different way, right? You have a different dialect. If you live in a suburban neighborhood, if you dress in certain clothes, my uh, daughter, you know, I'm Black, my husband's Black. She's at an all white institution. She's told me some of the comments her Black friends have made about her because I don't know, because she's my daughter, I guess, whatever. But do you see that a lot, Dr. Douglas, where Black folks are causing the pain and distraught of other Black people? Absolutely. And I think it's because we 
you know, expect that we all come from the same community. We all kind of look at like each other's, you know, the skin folk. We're supposed to be kin folk and we're not because we all have our different issues and ideologies about, you know, what is black and what isn't. And so there is a big portion of our depression of not even feeling like we fit in in our own community. And then when we try to rise and do things to bring us to places that, you know, maybe didn't welcome us before, you know, we're sellouts. And so, yeah, there's just so many layers as to how we feel about ourselves and who we can trust and who we feel supported by. We always look for validation in the black community, even as black people. And it's always not met with, you know, the best positivity. And so she's absolutely right. You got the outside and you got the inside pretty much stressing you out all at the same time. Wow. Yeah. I I just, first of all, want to thank both of you ladies. We are out of time. This is a conversation we could have for many, many more hours. I got to ask you real quickly before I let you go, Dr. Douglas, April brought it up. Somebody told her, girl, you're not praying enough. We know religion plays a big role in how we think about and talk about mental health in the Black community. Give me like 30 seconds about how we should be thinking about religion as it relates to seeking professional mental health. Take your religion to therapy. There are plenty of providers that offer Christian, Muslim faith-based interventions where they can incorporate those things into the interventions. You know, religion never just stops at the church. It can come into the therapy room. So take it with you and do both at the same time. It doesn't hurt to pray and talk to someone. So combine them. It's it's the best thing ever. Wow, that's a really good response to that. And I know so many of us grew up in communities where we were told that if we just prayed hard enough, you know, we would do better, right? It wasn't about uh, professional help. It was about our love of Jesus or lack thereof. And, you know, we we weren't saved enough that if we stopped sinning, you know, we could sleep at night. So, so many urban myths, so many urban tales out there. So just want to, again, thank you, April, for always being, you know, so honest, so transparent about something so personal, so tragic. You, you just carry what, uh, so much grace. And I just love you for that. And Dr. Douglas, thank you for sharing your insights with uh, us today. Again, uh, Reva Martin in real time. I'll be back tomorrow with trending news, expert analysis, and unfiltered opinion. The next voice so that you hear will be that of Les Brown. He will be motivating you on You Got to Be Hungry. He's with us all month, the month of February, in a radio residency right here on KBLA Talk 1580. If you want to continue this conversation with me, follow me on all social media platforms at Ariva Martin. And don't forget to download the KBLA app. You can listen and watch uh, all of our shows all over the globe. Uh, The next voice that you hear will be Les Brown after some news, traffic, and sports. KBLA Talk 1580. KBLA 1580 Santa Monica.